When we think of diplomacy, we usually think of it as something conducted at state level, by presidents, prime ministers, foreign secretaries and ambassadors. But it's not only nation-states which are seeking advantage and allies in the world. Sub-national entities like territories and protectorates and even unrecognised countries do it, and so do cities. This is the strange but increasingly important netherworld of paradiplomacy. Paradiplomacy includes a wide variety of outreach, some of it more formal than others. Cultural exchanges and regional investment agencies might be a form of paradiplomacy. So might town twinning, that quaint custom whereby some random burg elsewhere gets its name painted on the sign welcoming visitors to wherever it is you live for reasons you've never entirely understood. Paradiplomacy might not necessarily be the stuff of world-reshaping conferences or war-ending treaties, but it is nevertheless effective and influential. Is paradiplomacy having a moment? How does it work exactly? What can paradiplomacy accomplish that diplomacy cannot? And what makes a good paradiplomat? This is The Foreign Desk. One of the key things that defines the Faroe Islands as an independent actor internationally is the fact that we didn't join the EU. And of course, we're a fishing nation. That's the mainstay of the Faroese economy. Denmark couldn't take care of our interests because Denmark had joined the EU and become a part of that. And that allowed the Faroes to actually become an active player in international negotiations on fisheries resources. We have exclusive competence when it comes to fisheries management and most aspects of our economy, including taxation. We're a separate customs territory. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined, first of all, by Michael Keating, Professor of Politics at the University of Aberdeen and author of Paradiplomacy in Action, The Foreign Relations of Subnational Governments. Michael, let's start with the concept of paradiplomacy. How would you define it? Paradiplomacy is about the foreign activities of non-state governments, that's cities, regions, stateless nations, places that are not actors in the international system, but they nevertheless are interested in going abroad to do various things. There are two types of it. One is this called paradiplomacy, the other is sometimes called proto-diplomacy. And paradiplomacy really is about the extension of the domestic competences into the international arena. So if you're concerned with economic development at home, you're concerned with economic development abroad, attracting investment, trade. If you're concerned with the environment, then you want to get involved in international networks around the environment, or it could be doing with culture, education, just about anything that they do. Or it might be broad causes. There are networks of cities concerned with asylum issues or human rights. Proto-diplomacy is a little bit different. That is, in places with aspirations to independence, it's trying to pave the way. So, for example, Catalonia, where there's a government that has been seeking independence for Catalonia, has been a lot of work in recent years trying to get other places in Europe used to the idea of Catalonia being a nation and possibly an independent state at some time in the future. Which seems an important distinction. So is it fair to say, do you think, that paradiplomacy is not necessarily principally a means to an end? This is diplomacy undertaken <coughs> by a, a sub-national entity which is cheerfully reconciled to its status? Well, more or less cheerfully reconciled to its status. Sometimes it's in collaboration with the national government. Sometimes there's no 
problem at all and they complement each other. But other times it may not. For example, there may be a sub-state government that thinks that the national government is not doing enough about human rights or doesn't like the asylum policy. The American cities, for example, have become sanctuary cities and have tried to be welcoming to migrants, even though that is not part of their responsibilities. So it may be complementary and it may be conflictual. It depends on the politics. But how often does it fall into conflict, though, with the diplomacy of the larger sovereign <coughs> entity? It depends on the circumstances. Mostly it doesn't. In the case of Scotland, for example, I'm speaking here from Scotland, we have a nationalist government that wants Scotland to become independent. That is clearly puts it in conflict with the UK government. But on many issues, they're not in conflict at all. So Scotland has places, Scottish hubs, housed within UK embassies. They don't use that particular opportunity to campaign for independence, of course, it wouldn't be possible. But they put Scotland's line in attracting investment and culture and education exchanges or not. So even in a place like that, in a case like that, where you'd think there'd be a great deal of conflict because the ultimate aims of the two governments are very different, on a day-to-day -day basis, there's actually quite a lot of collaboration. Just a thought that occurs to me on that front. Can the paradiplomat actually sometimes be useful to the larger sovereign state acting as a kind of emissary or go-between or somebody who's able to conduct some sort of conversation bringing less baggage to it? That is very often the case. Just like small independent countries like Norway, say, can do a lot of peacekeeping because they don't have a lot of enemies. So it may be that non-state entities can do that as well and get involved in, in that. And there are also cases where the central government is quite happy to decentralise things. For example, in Italy, the overseas development budget has been decentralised, given to the regions because they're in many cases better at it and they can have programs that are targeted to particular areas and have relationships among civil society, because it's not just government that does this. Civil society organisations will do it as well, whether they be religious or charitable bodies or universities or educational institutions. And they may fill in the gaps, do things that are a fine level that big, large bureaucratic governments are not so good at. Do the paradiplomats ever have to be careful in terms of protocol? Do they have to worry about being seen to overreach whatever their mandate might be? Absolutely. There are strict protocol rules. And in the case of Scotland and the UK, these are known. And the Scottish government sticks pretty much to these rules because that's the rule of the game, even though they want to become an independent state. But at other times, there are conflicts precisely over those protocols. In the case of Quebec, when the Quebec nationalists were in Power. They were doing things that the Canadian government regarded as problematic. And whenever the Quebec people went, the Canadian governments would be sitting at the back of the room. I've been at meetings organised by Catalan paradiplomats and the Spanish embassy people sitting in the back of the room taking notes. So, whereas in the case of the UK, all of this is done on the basis of agreed rules. Sometimes it can be quite conflictual and sometimes it can become really petty when we get to seeing people spying on each other and creeping around to seeing what everybody else is up to. So within those limitations, what kind of things are they actually able to accomplish? By which I guess I'm asking, are there things we think of as notable paradiplomatic triumphs? They've done a lot of things around trade and investment because in many countries, trade and investment is partially at least devolved, although states and the European Commission set the international trade rules. Nevertheless, 
the details of attracting investment and shaping rules is very competitive and non-state entities compete with the, each other. And so attracting foreign investment is a big thing. And politicians, of course, love doing that. And they trumpet it when they manage to get a big investment in there. They've also tried to shape the rules, particularly in Europe. So as the European Commission becomes more friendly to regions and cities and more open to their lobbying. But very often, it's very difficult to measure what the effect of all this is. And I should say there's a certain amount of posturing there as well, because if good things happen to your region, you want to claim the credit and say that you went to Washington, D.C. or New York or Brussels or Tokyo, wherever it was, and got it. But certainly it seems from the amount of time and money that is invested in this, the cities and regions do seem to think that they're getting something out of it. Within the field of para-diplomacy, in the same way that I guess high-profile diplomats might fancy measuring themselves against a Bismarck or a Metternich, are there people within the field of para-diplomacy who are thought of as having been especially effective? I don't know about individuals, but there are cases where this has been quite effective. In the case of Quebec, which goes back a long way, has been pretty effective. Sometimes it's in conflict with the Canadian government. Very often it's not. There's a complementarity there. And from the 1960s onwards, when Quebec was going through the quiet revolution, industrializing, modernizing, part of that was about internationalizing Quebec and bringing investment into Quebec and getting Quebec known. That's regarded as a pretty successful example of how you go about doing these things. The Basque government, they've been quite effective in reshaping the profile of the Basque country and bringing foreign investment into it. And in the case of the UK as well, Scotland and Wales have been fairly effective in making their presence felt. That's one reason why Scotland gets a very large share of foreign investment coming into the UK, because it has its own inward investment capacity. It goes out there itself and woos investors and tries to bring investment into Scotland. And that then links into their domestic strategy as well tying in what they're doing abroad with what they're doing at home. Michael, thank you. That was Michael Keating, Professor of Politics at the University of Aberdeen. His book, Paradiplomacy in Action, The Foreign Relations of Subnational Governments, is available now in hardback. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Having delved into the theory of paradiplomacy, let's take a look at the practice. Joining me here in the studio is Kate Sanderson, Head of European and Ocean Affairs at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade for the Government of the Faroe Islands. The Faroe Islands, a self-governing nation under the sovereignty of the Kingdom of Denmark. Kate, first of all, I think we need to get into your background a bit. You are, in fact, Australian, which is about as far away from the Faroe Islands as any body can get. So how did you end up there in the first place? Well, briefly, I went to the Faroes to study Faroese, as you do. (laughs) And with my background from the University of Sydney, studying languages, English and German and so on. And Faroese is an interesting case in itself. It's a West Nordic language. It's a language of its own. And it's most closely related to Icelandic. That was my academic interest. That turned into a a long-term relationship (laughs) with the country. I went native. I have a Faroese husband, kids who are now bilingual, who grew up in the Faroes, but I've always spoken English with them. So we have this sort of dual Australian Faroese family. How would you define your role now, though? I'm employed in the Faroese Foreign Service and have been 
in that foreign service since it was first established, in fact, in, back in 1998. Mm. I'm a government official and I'm posted as a diplomat representing the government of the Faroe Islands here in London. We have a, a special kind of relationship with Denmark that allows us to post diplomats. We are officially accredited as diplomats through the Danish Foreign Ministry. So I'm on the diplomatic list under the Embassy of Denmark here in the UK as the Faroese representative. In our relationship with Denmark, it works on a practical level. It works very well. We are part of the infrastructure, if you like, of the Danish embassy here in London. But I am posted by the Faroese government, which means I take my orders from the Faroese government and I report to the Faroese government. How much wiggle room does the Faroe Islands have in terms of foreign policy, though? Because as, as I understand the arrangement, that's one of the functions the Kingdom of Denmark undertakes, like defence as well. In sort of general terms, sure, foreign policy and defence policy are the remit of the Danish state. But on a practical level, I think you have to look at where we do operate internationally. One of the, I suppose, the key things that defines the Faroe Islands as an independent actor internationally is the fact that we didn't join the EU, and mm. Denmark did. And that was back in 1973. And shortly after that, fisheries jurisdictions were extended to 200 nautical miles. And of course, we're a fishing nation. That's the mainstay of the Faroese economy. Not having joined the EU and the EU's common fisheries policy meant that Denmark couldn't take care of our interests because Denmark had joined the EU and become a part of that, in, if you like, given up its sovereignty on those, <laughs> on those issues to Brussels. And that allowed the Faroes to actually become an active player in international negotiations on fisheries resources. So the Faroese fisheries jurisdiction is Faroese. Those powers are fully devolved to the Faroes. We have exclusive competence when it comes to fisheries management and most aspects of our economy, including taxation, by the way. We're a separate customs territory. So all those sorts of areas, I think, where you've seen more and more powers merged amongst the EU member states, including Denmark, allow us, you know, it's necessary for us to be able to interact internationally on these issues because Denmark can't really do it for us as an EU member state. What are the practicalities of that international interaction? Is there a way of, I guess, boiling down what your average working week would consist of? It depends. When I was in the home service, if you like, I mean, the foreign service back in Torshavn in that home base, I was doing a whole range of different things, a lot to do with fisheries negotiations, our participation in international fisheries organisations where I headed delegations and chaired meetings mm. and so on. Here in London, I, as the representative of the government, I'm more of a generalist here. I don't delve into the sort of nitty-gritty of the trade and fisheries issues. That My colleagues in Torshavn do that. So my focus here is on managing and improving, enhancing our communications with the relevant government departments here in, in Whitehall, MPs. I mean, it's being the sort of voice of the pharaohs here in London, if you like, in relation to our relationships. And that's both formally, we have a post-Brexit, we have a bilateral trade agreement, mm. free trade agreement with the UK. And we also have a fisheries agreement with the UK. And we're looking to find ways to enhance our cooperation bilaterally on things like mobility, education, research. We're hoping, for example, that the UK activates its a membership in the European research cooperation because we're a part of that too. We're actually an associated country, if you like, of the EU research cooperation, whereby we pay into that program according to our GDP. We're in a stage of kind of rebooting the relationship, if you like, and mm. I suppose everybody's doing that at the moment because of Brexit. 
So we had to make sure we had these new formal agreements in place for fisheries and trade. Is there a level at which you feel, I guess, relatively easily understood in Britain compared to how the Faroe situation might be elsewhere? Because, of course, within the United Kingdom, there's Wales, Scotland and a different kind of case, Northern Ireland, in in a similar situation in which they do have a devolved government and they do represent themselves overseas. Is there, I guess, a, a natural kinship perhaps with Scotland and Wales? Yes, absolutely. I must admit I haven't had any real formal contact with colleagues in Wales as yet, but that's certainly my plan. But certainly with Scotland, I've only just recently been on a working visit to Scotland as the representative and had a lot of very interesting meetings with different departments and institutions and so on in Scotland. And absolutely, there's a lot that we have to talk about with Scotland. Obviously, we have an affinity in terms of being in the position that we are as non-states. They're very different, mind you, but there are obviously parallels and we feel I suppose, a joint affinity in how we, how far we can go and so on. But I think in many ways we have a lot more leeway internationally than, for example, Scotland in international relations because, well, just the fishery side, for example, I mean, that's not devolved in the UK. Scotland, of course, certainly as the people currently in government in Scotland would see it, part of what they're doing in terms of their diplomatic outreach is establishing, as they see it, the conditions under which Scotland can become a fully-fledged state. Is there any ambition of that sort underpinning the Faroes' diplomatic outreach? Yeah, I would say we have an interesting compilation of political parties in the Faroes. We have, in fact, seven (laughs) in a population of 53,000. But those parties, there are four larger ones, and two of them have a very clear sovereignty mandate in their manifestos. And the Social Democrats are certainly in favour of increased independence and more self-governance so long as it doesn't jeopardise welfare. And then you have a unionist party, which is in favour of maintaining Mm. links with Denmark. But I would say, in general, all across the political spectrum in the Faroe Islands, there is, even with the unionists, broad support for the Faroe Islands to use all avenues that we can to strengthen our voice internationally, to look after our own interests, to do our own negotiations when it comes to the issues that are vital for our economy and our society. Just finally then, because representing the Faroe Islands is your job, I'll I'll give you a chance to represent the Faroe Islands right now. What's kept you there beyond the obvious, i.e. your family? What do you like about it and what do you think other people might like about it if they went? I would say having my origins as a student of language and culture and that being the motivating factor for actually going to the Faroes originally, my focus is more on the people than on the landscape. But I would just say, to begin with, absolutely stunning place to visit as a tourist. And you're in the middle of the ocean. You have the sea around you 24-7. You just can't take two steps without seeing the ocean. And it's not just like a sea, it's the ocean. You're in the middle of the North Atlantic. It's very wild, it's very rough. But culturally, in terms of the society... I would say one of the things that I find most intriguing, I still find intriguing, even though I'm a part of it myself now, is the fact that Faroe society has maintained really strong links with its traditional past, its traditional food culture, while at the same time you would be incredibly surprised at just how sophisticated the Faroes are. I think a lot of people have in their minds, because people are always using this word remote, the tiny and remote Faroe Islands. I mean, for us living there, we don't use those words. In the capital, Torshan, you really do get a sense of being in a capital rather than a provincial town. You know, being small, you also, you can see the way the system works 
it's transparent. People know each other and you can see how it works. And that's absolutely fascinating, I think, as well. But I do think that this idea that traditional and modern for the Faroese, it's not a contradiction in terms to be both traditional and modern. They worked very well together. That was Kate Sanderson, Head of European and Ocean Affairs for the Government of the Faroe Islands. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. City government is usually assumed to be preoccupied with the most local kind of politics. But cities can develop a global image and a global reach and ambitions of projecting themselves accordingly. Well, joining me now is Erion Veliaj, mayor of Tirana, capital city of Albania. Erion, first of all, shortly before we recorded this interview, we saw an example of you conducting diplomacy in your role as mayor of Tirana. You met the Pope in Rome last November. So when the mayor of Tirana meets Pope Francis, what do you talk to him about? Well, you know, by coincidence, I happen to be on the organizing committee on his first apostolic trip abroad out of Italy to Tirana, Albania. So we had dealt in the past, but the city is looking at other ways to be known. We're also the country of Mother Teresa. She's Albanian. So she was declared a saint by the Pope and therefore a sanctuary on her name will take place in our city. Now, for believers, this will be a place of reflection and worship. For the city, it's a huge opportunity for religious tourism and pilgrimage. So, you know, it sounds strange, but there is plenty of business American talk to the Pope. In general, then, how much of the diplomacy that a city mayor conducts is basically salesmanship about selling the city abroad? Well, it's like the old joke, you know, if you don't uh, speak well of your own camel, you're never going to be able to sell it. So a mayor, whether it's a mayor of London or a mayor of Kigali or the mayor of Tirana, is doomed to be the chief marketing agent of that particular city. And I think so much more competition is not anymore between countries, but it's between regions and between cities. Cities fight. We compete to host the UEFA Conference League. Mm. So after the Pope, I met the mayor of Rome, who happened to win the UEFA Conference League final in Tirana between Rome and Feyenoord. Cities compete to become the European youth capital. Cities compete to become the European city of sport. A lot of these titles bring amazing business to the city. So a lot of the lobbying that happens between uh, cities for their votes and for their partnerships is incredible, and it's under the radar. But, you know, the city of Tirana, during this year that we were the European youth capital, we have had the busiest year of tourism since the fall of communism. I mean, even with pre-COVID dates, anyone who was in the youth business, whether it was the Young Neurosurgeon Association of Europe or the Young Orthodontist or the Young church choirs or the young butterfly collectors, I don't know, everybody met in the city. So it became a huge business for the city to become a venue for conferences, events, seminars, conventions. And I think more and more cities are looking to brand themselves safe spaces for big gatherings. So bringing Rita Ora, Dua Lipa, you know, big festivals to the city hugely increases the city's reputation, but also the property value. So the city of Tirana has seen an increase in the last seven years 2.5 times, 250% of property value, not only because it's cleaner and safer, but also because there's a lot going on. So I think the competition between cities, especially post-COVID, is incredible. Do you think city mayors, though, perhaps when they are acting on the world stage, have a kind of freedom of movement that maybe national leaders don't? 
Yes and no. So, for example, you know, there's, of course, Little Albania is also uh, a member of the UN Security Council for these two years. Clearly, that's for the government to co-author resolutions on Ukraine because we're the co-authors with the United States. So this is clearly above city level. But when it comes to Mayor Klitschko or our sister city, Kharkiv, looking out for generators fast, you know, to put on trucks, you know, it's usually mayors, you know, it's, it's either Francisca in Berlin or Sadiq in London or us in Tirana who will put up an effort and within days, either glass sheets for the winter or generators to be used for heating. So in that sense, mayors are more agile. And I would say, look, if prime ministers and presidents and kings and queens are riding ships or 18-wheeler trucks that take slow turns, mayors are usually on a bike, taking quick turns and being very agile. On the subject of those kind of, I guess, direct splashy actions that cities can take quickly in a way that nations perhaps can't, where do you see the diplomatic value of doing something like, for example, renaming a street in Tirana basically to annoy Russia? I think I'm right in saying the Russian embassy is now on free Ukraine street. Yeah, that is correct. And I think there are now plans for the embassy to move somewhere else, which, (laughs) of course, it's easier for us to move a street name than for them to overhaul their whole embassy. But this is not about trolling. This is about taking a stand that in parliaments or in governments may take forever to make because of bureaucracy and cities should be able to express, you know, the sentiments of their people. You know, I remember growing up in communist Albania where, you know, at the dawn of a new era, you know, the slogan better dead than red was in every street of Tirana. So streets and public displays of political affiliations of sentiments of a people are of common use, and we we see it mostly from graffiti activists. But cities are also activists. They embody the activism of sometimes half a million, a million, or several million people. And I think in that regard, cities can get away with more frank statements and blunt actions that maybe some countries or some parliaments can't get away with. You've been mayor of Tirana now a little over seven years, and you've been quite an outgoing city mayor in that time in terms of trying to sell Tirana to the world and give it some sort of imprint on the world stage. When you think back on that time, what do you think of as the more significant, well, paradiplomatic accomplishments you've been able to rack up? I think trying to get the city to be recognised beyond its immediate neighbourhood, I think, has been a success story. I mean, the fact that, you know, Brussels has recognized Tirana as the European youth capital. We've had over a thousand events. We've quadrupled our tourism inflow, which means a huge boost in reputation. And I know there's a lot of debates now about Albania in the UK, but anyone who has actually come and is not drinking the Kool-Aid of any given government in the UK and has seen the place and has seen that it's safer than most UK cities, if not all, that you eat like a king, drink like a king, with a fourth of the price, the quarter of a price that you eat in the UK, 300 days of sunshine, extremely friendly people, then I think what city diplomacy has done to the reputation of a nation, of a people, is unbelievable. We are a European city of sport, and we've already lined up over 500 events. And sometimes, you know, they're huge, like this UEFA Conference League. Sometimes they are the under-16 Taekwondo Championship. (laughs) But if you think that there's 2,000 European kids who all come with their parents and they stay in hotels and they spend a long weekend and they spend in restaurants, cities now are booming. If you look at our hotel applications, our Airbnb ratings, 
you would never realize that this was a country that until 30 years ago you'd be shot for coming in or going out, which was Albania under communism. So city diplomacy, I think, can pull off an energy that is uh, uncomparable to what bureaucracies and tourism agencies can do for any country. Arion Valiage, Mayor of Tirana, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.